Welcome to the Advancing Women Podcast, where ambitious women come together to challenge the status quo, advance their careers, and up-level their lives. The Advancing Women Podcast is hosted by gender equity expert and executive coach, Dr. Kimberly D. Simone. Welcome, warriors, to the Advancing Women Podcast. Ruth Bader Ginsburg famously said, women belong in all places where decisions are being made. In previous episodes, we've talked about the many significant increases in the number of women overall in the workforce, the increasing numbers of women putting themselves in the position for those top-level leadership roles, getting the graduate degrees from those elite institutions. Yet, we also know from the research that women continue to be the person in a partnership more often who is expected to subordinate their career to their spouse, to slow track or even exit the workforce prior to reaching those top-level roles of pay, power, and prestige. We know that women are the ones expected to be the caregivers, the supporters, the nurturers, and the sacrificers. I talk a lot about the societal, work, and home biases, barriers, and fallacies, the inequities that negatively impact women's advancement. But I also talk about how, fair or not, we need to transcend. It's not our fault, but it is our problem. So today, I'm going to focus a bit more on the pragmatic side. I'm going to be referencing some controversial perspectives from various experts and writers on the area and topic from Sheryl Sandberg and her book, Lean In, which was a bestseller, but also had been criticized for perhaps overemphasizing the empowered role women have, almost to a point of blame in changing a workforce culture. And also a controversial little book, a manifesto of sorts that has been widely criticized, but also widely praised, Linda Hirschman's Get to Work and Get a Life Before It's Too Late. It's provocative, to be sure. It's been called both a call to arms for women of the world, but also the author has been heavily criticized when you're saying things that are hard to hear. Sometimes there's some pushback. And then there's the seminal work of Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique. These books that I'm talking about, whether we agree or disagree, the good, the bad, and the ugly, raise some important questions and prompt important discussions we need to be having around women in the workforce. So we can intelligently listen, analyze, and take what serves us while leaving behind that that doesn't. By no means do I agree with everything in these books, nor do I disagree with everything in the books, but they are great conversation starters and important insights for us to turn to that point out some areas that need further dialogue and conversation. So if these books or some of what I say offends, I apologize, but we have to have these difficult discussions, and that is what I hope to do today. It is essential when talking about women's workforce choices to bring in the opt-out revolution and the opt-out myth. So in 2003, the New York Times Magazine published an article titled The Opt-Out Revolution by Lisa Belkin, and it really added fuel to the century-long debate about women in the workforce. I talk about it a lot in my research. It is pointed to often as a kind of spearhead of the dialogue and conversation surrounding women's decisions to either stay or exit the workforce. And on the cover of the article, it featured the title, The Opt-Out Revolution. And then underneath the title was the banner, Why Don't More Women Get to the Top? They Choose Not To. And in the article, Belkin shared stories about herself and eight other Princeton graduates who no longer work full-time. 
Belkin concluded that women were just too smart to believe that ladder climbing counted as real success. The article addressed how well-educated women were fleeing their careers and choosing instead to stay home with their babies. And this is a storyline that has been touted many times before. The revolution Belkin is referring to is a shift from a revolution to get women equitably into the workforce in favor of a new kind of revolution. Belkin ends the article suggesting that this movement is, quote, not a failure of the revolution, but the start of a new one, end quote. And the women like her and those in her article could, quote, usher in a new environment for all of us. The ideological chasm, of course, as it relates to today's workforce, is how socioeconomic status, which is still embedded in the woman stay-at-home narrative, comes into play. This is a media narrative which persists where there's plentiful discussion of and almost a reverence to women choosing to stay home with their children. But which women are we really talking about? Most mothers have to work to make ends meet, and yet there is often this disproportionate traction in the media rallying around the decision of the elite few women who don't. Holding this up as some ideal, an ideal for women that yet again is unrealistic and unlikely. The viability and generalizability of the opt-out revolution is absurd. Belkin, a white, middle-class, Ivy League-educated woman, opted out. But this option is, in reality, not really financially viable to very many women. Many women have to work. They can't simply, quote, opt out. They have neither the luxury nor the privilege to do so. Then there's this fallacy of why even the women who can leave actually do leave. In response to the opt-out revolution storyline, many counterpoints emerged refuting the opt-out revolution, suggesting it is much more of an opt-out myth. And this is challenging explanations highlighted in the media's reporting that women are leaving the workforce by choice versus feeling forced or pushed out by powerful corporate and social systems and norms. Those inequities, barriers, biases in the workplace and in the home that we discuss so often in this podcast that not only keep women from advancing, but impact the decision to leave or slow track the workforce. And Joan Williams, who I cite often on this podcast, she's brilliant, noted in her meticulously researched report, Opt Out or Pushed Out, How the Press Covers Work-Family Conflict, released a few years after Belkin's New York Times article, addressed the complexity of this opt-out storyline, noting that this storyline rarely addresses the bias and discrimination that drives many women out of the workforce. Williams notes, quote, Perhaps the most damaging part of the opt-out storyline is that it excuses gender discrimination under the rubric of choice. There is another story to be told, far different from that of educated women blithely choosing to stay home, that women are not pulled out of the workforce by their biological need to care for their children, but are often pushed out by maternal wall bias and discrimination against mothers at work, end quote. And I've talked about this many times before in previous episodes. Research shows how this choice narrative can have a really negative, even devastating effect in that it reduces compassion and actually the incredulity against inequity, and it impacts policy and change negatively. The more potent the choice narrative, the less effort will be made to create change. And again, this impacts all women when Belkin's article really refers to a very small number of women in a position to make this, quote, choice. 
So in Hirschman's book, Get to Work, she asks, what does this elite minority have to do with the rest of the world? Answering her own question, she states, these educated and privileged women matter because they are the most likely women to become the rising stars of the new economy. The future senators, dealmakers, newspaper editors, research scientists, policymakers, television writers, movie producers, university presidents, and Supreme Court justices, end quote. So we have to consider the loss of ambitious, talented, well-educated, and thus highly qualified women when they opt out. But even if we do focus on these highly educated women Belkin was referring to, those women with the financial means, the familial circumstances, the education, where they can make a choice to stay home, the statistics suggest that most don't. This is evidenced by the fact that most women with those types of backgrounds do actually still work, albeit for less power, pay, and prestige than similarly qualified male candidates in many cases. And finally, the opt-out storyline fails to note the many unintended consequences for women opting out, how the often unspoken deals made to temporarily opt out will impact lives for the long haul. What this would look like and feel like, say, 5, 10, or 20 years later, what the choice would cost. And much of the purpose of Hirschman's manifesto for women to get back to work before it's too late was really to bring attention to the costs to women and society on the whole when women exit the workforce, especially in those leadership roles. In referencing women's choice to exit the workforce after having children, Hirschman says how bounding home is no good for women and it is not good for society. So this is one consequence that is important to consider and discuss, but also the consequences to power dynamics in a marriage or partnership and the consequences in a culture with high levels of divorce. Hirschman controversially notes about women opting out that their, quote, so-called free choice makes them unfree dependence on their husbands, end quote, what she called the result of the unspoken bargain with the guy who provides the health insurance. Now, I know this sounds a bit rough, insensitive, even antagonistic, but ask yourself honestly if you or any woman you know of doesn't in some way feel this, that they feel that they have less power, less decision-making power. I know that I've spoken to dozens of women and reviewed many studies that show that women who don't work outside the home often report feeling subordinated in their relationships overall. Or worse, they sometimes express feeling trapped, like even if they're unhappy, what can they do about it? That they somehow don't have the right to ask for what they want because at the end of the day, the ideology that the one who makes the most money has all the agency, all the say. There's a wealth of research that suggests how power in the outside world translates into more power in the family. And please don't take this to mean this is the case for all. I am sure there are many women who stay at home and feel like they're in equitable partnerships. And that's awesome. The whole point of this conversation is to help those who are not in that position. This is about understanding that every choice we as women make must be considered in terms of what it could mean to our bargaining power in the future. Because the research shows that often the person who makes less money has less bargaining power. And that person in a partnership is often the woman. Author Susan Goldenberg asserted, quote, where there is no bargaining, everything does not fall naturally into some utopian just 
and fair arrangement, where there is no bargaining, the strong rule. Men come to a marriage with the advantage of thousands of years of conventional assumptions that they are entitled to female domestic labor. And so much research supports this. When couples marry, the amount of time a woman spends doing housework increases while a man's decreases. That's just a fact from the research. As Hirschman notes, conventions, societal norms, these can be the default position. So we must bargain for ourselves from the offset because, quote, loving husbands and fathers don't do the housework unless they must, end quote. Cheryl Sandberg makes a similar point in her best-selling book, Lean In, when she says that women wanting to advance need to, quote, make your partner a real partner. Part of the issue with the temporary opting out deal we make up front is how little we have to bargain with later. It's difficult later often to convince your partner who is making all the money to take a step back in their job, to take on more familial responsibility, or to spend money or invest in the things necessary to help you get back on track and back into the workforce after a long absence. The reality is Women aren't just going to jump right into that high-paying job after a long absence. They have to work and prove themselves. And as I've talked about in other podcasts, they have to prove themselves again and again. But they don't have the stay-at-home spouse that their husband had to help them get ahead. And so this resentment, frustration, and honestly, needing to negotiate from a position of very little power can emerge. We don't always think about how hard it is to on-ramp back once we leave when we're having those earlier conversations about subordinating our careers temporarily. So there are some important takeaways and learning that we need to consider as we think about this. Hirschman suggests, if you are single, to be aware of, to be mindful of your bargaining power while in the courtship. Make it clear before you commit that you will not quit work to care for the household, even if you have children. Or if you're going to make that sacrifice, be specific and open about the expectation and the reality of the choice down the road. If you are ambitious, don't sell yourself short. Be sure to seek out a partner with an ideological commitment to gender equality. We need to have the conversation about the deals we make early on and be mindful of the long-term consequences of the deals we make. And also, we need to be much more mindful of the premise of the deal. And if you think about it, this is often how these types of conversations will sound. A couple is considering what adding children will look like for them while the children are young. So let's say the woman makes $50,000 a year in her job and the man makes $100,000 and they decide they're going to have a baby. Too often, the practice is to immediately assign the cost of childcare to the woman. So if the full-time nanny is $30,000, they figure after taxes, the woman making $50,000 is really making around $30,000, and that's just enough to pay the nanny, so she might as well stay home. But let me ask a question. Just let's interrupt that pattern for a second. Why is the cost of childcare considered strictly within the context of only the woman's salary? Herein lies the problem. It's built on an unfair and inequitable premise, ignoring the fact that both adults are in the family creation enterprise together. Wouldn't a better way to look at the partnership, a more fair and equitable way to look at what the couple makes together and say, okay, it looks like together we're making $150,000 a year and the nanny is $30,000. So we'll have $120,000 left over after paying the nanny, less taxes left to live on. 
It's a different way to look at things, a different conversation, but one that needs to happen more often if we want to see women advancing later into those roles of power, pay, and prestige. There is no reason that we should look at or default to childcare as the woman's responsibility. But when we have a conversation where we immediately right out of the gate start with, well, how much would you have to make as the woman for it to be worth it for us to have a nanny? We've already shifted the dynamic in a really negative way that's going to have long-term consequences. And honestly, for me, even more offensive to the economics is the idea that all we lose by staying home is the pay. What about the purpose, the contributions we make or can make outside the home? And I know some of you will say the contributions just shift to the home, but men who work and have kids have both. They can be parents, great parents, and enjoy the accolades of success and purpose in their work and their contributions. With women, we seem to always be talking about shifting our contributions away from those external and professional pursuits in favor of domestic and familial contributions. It's an either-or paradigm, but again, only with women. We have to make the trade-off. This has been the case for decades. In her landmark 1963 seminal book, The Feminine Mystique, Betty Friedan notes, quote, Down through the ages, man has known that he was set apart from other animals by his mind's power to have an idea, a vision, and shape the future to it. Frieden goes on to say, this is the real mystery. Why did so many American women with the ability and education to discover and create go back home again to look for something more in housework and rearing children? You know, this idea that with women, we find our true purpose in the home where men find purpose in the home and with their work. And it is a question worthy of our discussion. The lack of discussion of the contributions lost when women exit the workforce, not just the monetary loss, reminds me of Danielle Crittenden in her book from the late 90s, I think it was 1999 or 2000, titled, What Our Mothers Didn't Tell Us, Why Happiness Eludes the Modern Woman. And she notes, quote, we want the warm body next to us on the sofa in the evenings, and we want the noise and embrace of family around us. We want at the end of our lives to look back and see that what we have done amounts to more than a pile of pay stubs, that we have loved and been loved and brought into this world life that will outlast us, end quote. More than a pile of pay stubs. Really? Honestly, that line really pisses me off. I'm married with two kids. I love my kids. I love my husband and my family, but my work, my research, teaching, writing, speaking, this podcast, to relegate all of that to a pile of pay stubs is truly insulting. It's so much more than a pile of pay stubs. So men get to have loved and been loved and brought into the world life that will outlast them, even if they work. But when we work, we're giving all that up for, quote, a pile of pay stubs. That kind of thinking needs to be squashed. It needs to stop. It's nonsense. Let's have an honest conversation about what we sacrifice, what we lose beyond the paycheck. As Hirschman notes, when you quit work, you don't just lose pay. You lose something called human capital. All the professional contacts, up-to-date skills, relevant daily experiences that keep you on top of your game. It's important to consider this as well. If women choose to stay home, they must consider the full complexity of the decision because maybe then 
There's some proactive thinking, ways that we can minimize the loss of professional capital. How might we negotiate ways to stay in the game or invest in our professional development if and when the choice is made to stay home? We also have to consider the sad reality of the divorce data. The U.S. divorce rate is amongst one of the highest in the world. There are more than 750,000 divorces in the U.S. each year, and divorce amongst people over 50 years old is rising. This is no doubt why Hirschman expresses concern in her book, Get Back to Work, when she warns women that, quote, choosing to shoulder the household at the expense of your market employment means you will be disempowered at divorce, end quote. And I note this not to come to the discussion with a gloom and doom perspective or to suggest that this is an inevitable outcome. But there is a common misconception exacerbated in the entertainment media that women siphon the wealth from their exes and then go on to live in comfort and luxury. But that isn't what the research shows because so much of the sacrifice, the emotional labor, the domestic labor in marriage is undervalued. And because of this, women are disproportionately disadvantaged in divorce oftentimes. This is all just to say that consideration of exiting the workforce is far more complex than it is often made out to be, and it's certainly more complex than a pile of pay stubs. When we oversimplify this, we fail to consider the loss of bargaining power, loss of control, loss of voice in the marriage, loss of purpose that is often felt, and the long-term loss of human capital, professional capital. All the professional contacts, up-to-date skills, relevant daily experiences, how much less money you will make for the remainder of your career, the consequences that will follow you even after you return to work as the kids are older, and the potential economic devastation in the case of divorce. So this is an important conversation. This is about pragmatism. And so we need to think about the things we can do about it. We need to change the conversation from an oversimplified idea, the idea of just taking a few years off to understand the real decision being made and its full complexity, the many potential unintended, but nonetheless real consequences of the choice. This helps in creating a culture where on-ramps to get women back into the workforce are thought about, planned, and prioritized. It's important to look at the big picture, the long term, so that we can negotiate more clearly and specifically the support we want and need if we make the choice to stay home, and that we consider the investments necessary to minimize the loss of professional and human capital over the time women are home. How can we stay in the game, so to speak, keep our skills up, make it easier to on-ramp back into the workforce if that's part of the plan? Men need to consider the long-term negative effects on them because they will ultimately feel the pressure if their spouse is unable to contribute financially, not just for that short term, but for the long term. Uh, If it ends up being longer than anticipated, what does that mean in terms of the weight that they carry, when they're going to be able to retire, what retirement will look like, and what it might look like if both partners were able to contribute? Talking about those kinds of things from the perspective of the benefit to the partnership in the long term is really important because otherwise you find yourself, and I've heard many women talk about this, down the road feeling like 
they're really having to cajole the person on the other side of the bargain into understanding why they should make any investment in the person because they're like, well, just hop back into work. I mean, we can't invest if you're not bringing in any money. And we really need to move that conversation out of that arena and into the arena of the benefits to both partners. Importantly, As I've discussed in previous episodes on emotional labor, we need culturally to define household work and childcare as work. Housework, childcare, elder care, or caring for parents, older parents, shopping, transporting people, deciding what to have for dinner, cooking, planning, scheduling, are all work. And work is an activity that produces something of value, whether paid or unpaid. And so that needs to be talked about often. And it needs to be on the surface and in our mindset so that we see the value of that time and the value of the sacrifice. And here's something a bit controversial uh, that Hirschman has been criticized for, and it should be at least talked about. And that's the consideration of how many children a person has and how that's going to impact. Economist Robert Pollack focuses on social choice theory and the economics of the family, and he describes having children as a big upfront decision that affects future bargaining power, noting, quote, a husband's promise to share equally in childcare is unenforceable. And recognizing this, a couple may have fewer children than both spouses would prefer. Now, before you start typing an angry email to me or getting really irritated with me, please know I am in no way weighing in or advocating for a reproductive strike when women feel concerned because they're seeing signs of inequitable distribution in childcare. But it is a conversation that should be considered. It may be the time to renegotiate your deal as you're feeling that. Potentially that unspoken deal, but a deal nonetheless and consider whether adding more children will work under the current deal. You have the right to ask for more help before you agree to take on more responsibility. And if you're feeling, even after one child, the weight of the emotional labor of all of the unappreciated, undervalued tasks, then it's time to have that conversation and say, look, we we agreed we wanted more than one child. However, it's not looking like That's going to be possible unless some things change. And I think it's an important and fair conversation to have. Also, we really need to think about how culturally we we can continue to challenge and interrupt distasteful cultural norms and social messages that as women, much of our value is tied to motherhood, that without children, we're not as valued or whole, that a couple is not a family. I love it when people ask couples when they're going to start a family and they respond, I started a family, we're a family. Culturally, we need to stop making couples feel like having only one child is almost child abuse. You know, the old, they need a sibling. It's perfectly acceptable to not have kids, to have many kids, to have one kid. That is up to each person. But these choices are significant and result in effects that should be considered and negotiated. And I know those are hard conversations to have. Partnerships are about having those hard conversations up front before you're in a position later where you don't have as much bargaining power in the conversation. And women, you have the right to renegotiate your deal at any time when the circumstances change. Men do it all the time, even in traditional breadwinner homemaker models. How often do you hear men wanting to move to another city for their work that was likely not part of the original deal? Women staying home, but then they're being yanked, asked to go wherever to a new environment where they have to start over in terms of building their support systems. And what about a man when he loses his job? If that happened and the wife said, oh, 
you're not delivering on your end of the bargain. I'm out. People would say that she was a horrible person, only in it for the money. But in reality, it's a change that leads to a renegotiation. Maybe the woman goes back to work. Maybe they move. Maybe both work full time. Of course, you expect there to be discussion and negotiation. Well, women too should be able in a partnership to renegotiate the deal if it doesn't work for them anymore. If your husband is miserable in his job, you'd likely say, well, honey, make a change. If you're feeling overwhelmed or that there's an unfair distribution of what's being expected of you or that you're not satisfied because you're not investing in things that you need for yourself and for your own fulfillment, then you should be able to make a change. We need to be able to renegotiate our deal. And if you're working full-time and still carrying the lion's share of all the housework and childcare, as the research shows is often the case for women, you have the right to renegotiate. This nonsense that, well, you know, it bothers you if the house isn't clean, so that's on you, or whatever rationale is offered up to silence women's dissatisfaction or to dismiss it or discount it as complaining has to go. A partnership is about caring about the other person. So if it bothers only you or only them, it is important. That is a partnership. In its truest definition, a partnership is sharing of both profits and liabilities. It's not about one partner controlling the profits while the other holds the lion's share of the liabilities. Not that I'm saying children or families are a liability. I'm talking about the responsibilities that too often are inequitably distributed to women, the part that most people would not and do not find fulfilling, but are nonetheless necessary. Really having a mindset of partnership is critical. A recent Harvard study found that high-achieving women are not meeting their career goals they set out for themselves in their 20s, not necessarily because they're opting out of the workforce when they have kids, but because they're allowing their partner's careers to take precedence over their own, prioritizing the other career. And this is in many research studies. I conducted a research study of women in the Fortune 500, and they similarly expressed that it is very likely that in a career with two ambitious people trying to advance when that career requires a lot of commitment, that one will be expected to subordinate and too often that the person expected to subordinate is the women. So we have to be mindful of the mindset of women and men, even high potential women and men, and challenge and interrupt that thinking. So in this Harvard study, the researchers interviewed thousands of men and women who graduated from Harvard Business School. When they graduated, more than half of the male graduates said they expected their careers would take precedent over their partners, more than half. Less than 10% of female Harvard Business graduates said they expected their careers to take precedent. So think about that disconnect, right? More than half the men are like, well, of course my career will take precedence. Almost none of the women are like, well, I expect my career to take precedence. But here's what the women did expect. The majority of women said they assumed they would have egalitarian marriages in which both spouses' careers were taken equally seriously. But you can see the disconnect in these expectations. If these women are marrying men like the ones they were in school with, and the research shows, you know, homophily theory, birds of a feather flock together, and that is often the case. Ambitious, highly educated people tend to marry ambitious, highly educated people. But if women are going into it saying, well, I think we're going to have an egalitarian marriage, most women, and more than half of the men are saying, yeah, I think my career is going to be prioritized, that can be a challenge. And if that conversation isn't had, 
you're going to run into those problems. That disconnect, again, is that antiquated homemaker breadwinner mentality rearing its ugly head. The social cultural norms that are kind of underneath bubbling all the time that assume that women will be better at the caregiver role, that women are the sacrificers, and that men do better in the workforce. So if we're going to expect that one person will subordinate their career, it's probably going to be the woman. And this begins to creep into ambitious women's mindsets too, unfortunately. They soon see this egalitarian utopia they expected as not their reality. And it can be even worse for women who see the writing on the wall, who feel theirs will not likely be the prioritized career, because this leads to women having an exit strategy in mind even before they begin to build their career in some cases. Sheryl Sandberg noted in her best-selling book, Lean In, don't leave before you leave. And this is kind of one of those negative results of this mindset of the woman ultimately is going to have to subordinate her career. And because ambitious women are also typically good at planning and want to create an environment of success, they start to do this. They start to leave before they leave. And Sandberg encouraged women to keep their foot on the gas pedal until the decision must be made. She says, do not slow down. Anyone lucky enough to have options should keep them open. Do not enter the workforce already looking for the exit. Don't put on the brakes. Sandberg notes, quote, Women rarely make one big decision to leave the workforce. Instead, they make a lot of small decisions along the way, making accommodations and sacrifices that they believe will be required to have a family, end quote. Even before they're, they're in a position to have a family oftentimes. She provides the example of a time when a young girl at Facebook asked her about balancing work-life balance and children. And after some probing, Sandberg learned that this girl had no children, was not pregnant. She wasn't even married yet. So we have to try to avoid the consequences of both not knowing sometimes or of knowing the potential realities for women. So not knowing can be a problem because you're in for a surprise when you're expecting this egalitarian utopia. Um, and then you're disappointed to find that that's just not what typically ends up happening, the research shows. Or if you do expect it to come and you start to plan and you start to put into play strategies that will make that transition easier, it's complicated, right? Either way, we're blindsided when inequity emerges or we're planning for the inequity right out of the gate. And neither of those put us in our most powerful position of advancement, obviously. Hirschman speaks to this as well, noting the importance of the first few years of work as an opportunity to build our professional capital. This way we have more bargaining power, both in the workforce and at home. And when on-ramping back to work, this too is messaging that women need to hear. We can talk about the value of choice, the value of family, certainly, but we should always talk about the value of women in the workforce as well. So I'll wrap up saying that the aim of this whole discussion is not judgment or even guidance in terms of the choices we should or do make. God knows women have enough prescriptive biases suggesting how we should behave, and I'm not in any way trying to add to that. That said, this conversation and conversations like this are important. We as women in the world, as more than 50% of the world, should have voice and agency always. That voice, that agency should not be trumped by the ideology that the one who makes the most money gets all the agency. 
This conversation is not just about our choices. It's also about knowing and acknowledging the unintended consequence to women's voice and agency when they put their careers on hold, when less money's coming in. And it is about having the right to renegotiate if the choice isn't working for us for any number of reasons. Saying, well, that was your choice, or that's what we agreed upon, is not compassionate, it's not fair, and it's not a partnership. It's actually bullshit. We have the right to make a new choice when the current choice isn't working for us. We see so many articles, news stories, books that blame women for not advancing or having equal pay because we don't negotiate enough in the workplace. But it's an important conversation to have in terms of negotiating in the home and within the family. And that can be even more challenging. So for this week's manifest statement, I have two quotes, one from Madeleine Albright and one from Melinda Gates. Albright said, quote, it took me quite a long time to develop a voice. And now that I have it, I am not going to be silent. And Melinda Gates said, quote, a woman with a voice is by definition a strong woman. But the search to find that voice can be remarkably difficult. And so building on this, my manifest statement is simple. We, all women, have the right to agency and for our needs, our happiness, and our life satisfaction in all areas to be heard and to be deemed important in our work, in society, and in our partnerships. For all you warriors listening who want to continue to transcend barriers and thrive, you won't want to miss next week's episode, so make sure to hit that subscribe button. For more resources, you can visit my website www.advancingwomenpodcast.com and connect on Instagram at Advancing Women Podcast. I love getting your feedback and ideas on topics you'd like to hear me cover in more depth or new topics you'd like me to explore. So please email me at drdsimone at advancingwomenpodcast.com with your ideas and feedback. That's D-R-D-E-S-I-M-O-N-E at advancingwomenpodcast.com. I just want to thank my producer, Joe Jacobs, the audio warrior who wrote the music for this podcast. It's totally badass and I love it. And a huge thanks to Heather Harris, the creative warrior who designed the Advancing Women podcast logo. And thanks to all of you for joining me here today.